be not transformed, be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. This ancient word is an invitation, an invitation to us to allow grace to shape the way we live in our lives, the way we live in work and play, the way we live at church and at home, to understand everything we see and do. In fact, there's even a phrase in that, in that text that implies that mind and body are, are, are interrelated. Our bodies even will reflect the very grace of God when our minds are renewed and transformed, to let that be the way we live in this world, especially with those we love and care for the most. Brene Brown points out, though, that too often we don't allow our minds to be renewed. We don't allow our minds to consider grace and a gracious way of living as the way we, we want to give ourselves to each and every day. Instead, we take on the form of, of those in the cheap seats, as she calls them, those voices of, of, of critique and cynicism, of fear-mongering, that too often we allow those voices to shape us and to transform us, maybe even offering our own voice in the same way. These are ones who will never, in her phrase, go down to the arena, give their blood, sweat, and tears. Instead, they sit way up in the, in the cheap seats, as she calls them somewhere, critiquing, criticizing, fear-mongering even. I'm, so, I'm sure you've, you've seen this before. I'm sure you, you understand how this works. The more she began to write about these ideas, the more she herself came under this criticism. She wrote a book a while ago, and I'm going to quote it later on in the sermon today, The Gifts of Imperfection. And in that book, she noted how difficult it is to face our own imperfections, how often that's all we ever see when we look in the mirror or we see ourselves reflected in the eyes of others. Somebody wrote to her on her blog after the book was published and said, if I looked like you, I'd write about imperfection as well. What a terrible thing to say. What kind of a person does that? Well, frankly, we all probably know somebody just like that. Too many somebodies. Another person wrote to her after she had been, taken a, a vulnerable risk to admit that she sometimes melts down as a parent and, and doesn't do very well as a, as a mother and sometimes falls completely apart. They wrote and said, I worry about your kids. No good mother ever lets herself fall apart. Here she is risking, taking the chance to step out into the arena to offer herself to, find a, to help all of us find a way through the dark and difficult moments in our own lives. There's something just really mean-spirited about our culture these days. Not long after Julie and I arrived here, we went to an Ohio State football game. It was a great game. Ohio State was playing very well. They're playing against a very tough opponent, but there was a man sitting two rows behind me who critiqued almost every single play. Come on, Urban. This is when Urban Meyer was the coach. Come on, Urban. Why did you call another off-tackle play? Oh, come on. What kind of game plan is that? And not only that, the more beer he drank, the smarter he thought he was. I've done some research. It doesn't work that way, just so, you're, just so we're clear. And he constantly threw out. In fact, there was even, a, and Ohio, like I said, Ohio State was playing well. There was even a couple of plays that were great plays, many yards. And you know what he said? Well, they got lucky on that one. They just, they just got lucky. It's amazing, isn't it? How many voices there are like that out there in our world? Sometimes it's our own loved ones that speak to us in that way. A few years ago, a friend of mine 
called me up and said, she's a member of a different church. She called me up and said, I'm, I'm struggling with something at our governing board here. I'm on the governing board at my congregation. Could we meet for coffee? I said, sure, let's, let's do. So we met for coffee and I noticed the energy in her voice from the phone call was gone. She seemed distraught and distracted. She, we were at a Starbucks and she kind of looked out the window and watched traffic. Finally, after about 15 minutes, I said, is everything okay? No. I had a terrible fight with my daughter this morning. I just keep replaying it in my mind. Uh, what, what happened? Well, she came home with a report card and, and, well, my daughter, as you know, has been a straight-A student her entire life. She's a junior in high school this year. She's lined up to go to several Ivy League schools. We're making some visits. We're certain she's going to be eligible for a scholarship. And she came home with a report card and one of her classes, she got a B. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, I would have loved to have gotten Bs. <laughs> the mother said that she just tore into her daughter. So I just, I just tore into her and said, we were counting on scholarship help. We're counting on you doing well. I can't believe you let yourself get down. And after about five minutes of lecturing her daughter, her daughter, who was stone-faced the whole time, looked at her mother and then said, do you know what? You're never happy. When I was getting straight A's, you were never happy. You critiqued the classes I was taking, saying they were too easy. You put me down because I didn't take enough college prep work. You're never happy. What's 1B? You're still not happy. My friend dropped her face, stared quietly at her coffee for a moment. And then she said, Glenn, what, what makes this worse? I had almost the exact same conversation with my mother when I was 16 and said the same words to her. Sometimes the cheap seats are right next to us. Sometimes the cheap seats and those voices of cynicism and criticism and fear-mongering come from the ones we love the most. Sometimes, I, maybe you've noticed this too, at least I've noticed it in my own life, sometimes the cheap seat voice is the one in our head. It's the voice that tells ourselves, you'll never be good enough, you'll never measure up. You know, I can, I can stand in front of a crowd of a couple hundred folks and deliver a sermon and, and not be too nervous. I get a little nervous, but not, not have too much trouble. But one-on-one, -on -one, that's when that voice comes into my head and I'm having a conversation with somebody and I think to myself, he thinks I'm a complete loser or she thinks I'm really dull and boring. The invitation from the Apostle Paul and by extension by our friend Brene Brown is to silence those voices, to not let those voices dominate us or guide us. Jesus tells us that the great commandment is this, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you can't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor. Look at the cover of your bulletin. Brene Brown says almost the exact same thing. If you're going to love another, you have to accept your own acceptability, accept your own love worthiness. And so an inherent task in this, in this day is, is to find the willingness, and I would even say the courage or the vulnerability to trust in another, to trust in another, to be vulnerable in front of the other. Charles Feltman defines trust as choosing to risk making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions something you value, vulnerable to another person's actions. Now, that might be like loaning your car. 
I remember the first time I saw my 16-year-old son, Nate, as he had just finished his, his driver's test, got his driver's license. I remember the feeling in that in the pit of my stomach watching him drive my car away by himself for the first time ever. But that's nothing compared to giving your own emotional feelings to another, sharing how you care for them or how you might need forgiveness from them because you're owning up to a failure, to a fault. Here's the thing. Most of us think we're trustworthy. Most of us, according to the research, believe that we're very trustworthy persons. You interview 100 people and the majority will say, oh yes, I'm, I'm very trustworthy. The problem with that thinking though is that most of us are not very trusting and you won't be seen as trustworthy if you don't trust others. Do you see how that works? They're the only way you'll be seen as a trustworthy person is if you yourself trust in another person to hold on to whatever feelings you might be sharing with them. Instead, what most of us do is we fail to trust others, and so we intend, un, almost unintentionally then build a wall, an emotional barrier to keep our emotions from being seen and protect ourselves from the possibility of being hurt. And then we wonder, why are we so alone? Why am I so lost? Why does no one seem to care? There's been some interesting research done by Stephen Covey. I think it was in an article in the Harvard Business Review where he mentioned that oftentimes people think of the idea of trust building as a soft skill, as a secondary skill. According to their research and the work that he and his colleagues have done, it is nothing but a soft or secondary skill. Trust building is in fact a primary skill. It's not a nice to have, it is a must have. And it's true for business, it's true for education, it's true for church, it's true for you and for me. Trust is the willingness to risk setting yourself up for failure. As many of you may know, uh, Julie and I and, and Paul Anderson and, and Bruce Pontius, who are involved in our, our operational work here, and stewardship especially, uh, spent three days down in Florida visiting some of our, our first community snowbird folks down there. Uh, Carl Eichinger, who's a member of our church who lives in Florida this time of year, gave me a book at the end of our visit titled Everybody, Always, Everybody, Always by Bob Goff. I read it on the plane. I got started in it. I couldn't stop. I read the book on the plane, finished it that night when we, when we got home. He tells a story, Goff does, of a man named Lex who was a blind track star. Did you hear me? A, a blind track star. Now here's the way this works. His friend, Lex, discovered when he was seven years old or so that his, his eyesight was beginning to fade. After 10 operations, he lost complete, the complete ability to see. By the time he was a little more than eight, he could no longer see anything. But he realized when he was in high school that he was fast, that he could run fast. And the way you, the way you run track when you're blind is you have a friend who runs ahead of you. And he calls out your name. And that's what he would do. He would enter various events, and his friend, who was also a star on the team, also a track star, would enter with him, and he would run next to him and call out his name, and he would simply follow the voice of his friend. And by trusting in his friend, it's almost exactly what you guys did in the children's moment. Did you get my notes ahead of time? By following the voice of his friend, he was secure in knowing that he could make it around the track safely. Now, think about this. Which voice do you want to listen to? 
the voice of a friend or of the critic, the one from the cheap seats? Can you, can you hear the voice of God? All the Gospels carry the story of Jesus' baptism. Why? Well, to let us know who Jesus is, but also to remind us who we are. What does God say to Jesus in that moment? This is my child, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. It's there not only to tell us who Jesus is, but to tell us who you are. You are the child of God. The voice that God wants you to hear today and every day is that you are the child of God and you are beloved. Beloved by God. Well, as I said, Lex does quite well. In fact, when he gets off to college, he decides he's going to try out for the college track team. And the event that he enters in is the long jump. Because not only is he fast, but he's realized and discovered that he can jump very far. And here's the way he was able to enter the long jump. You know, you know how the long jump works, right? It's about, a, it's about a three foot wide path. It's about 100 feet long. And you run as hard as you can down that 100 feet. There's a board at the end of the path. You plant one foot on that, and then you launch yourself off as far as you possibly go into a sand pit. Well, what they would do is, Lex had a friend who would come, and he would square his shoulders up. His friend would square Lex's shoulders up to the path so that he knew which direction to go. And then he would jog down to the end of the path. And once he got down there, he'd give Lex a couple of beats to set himself. And then he'd start calling out, fly, fly, fly. As soon as he heard that voice, Lex would take off running as hard as he possibly could. He'd counted out the steps previously, knew exactly how many steps he'd need to take. He'd hit that board all the time hearing his friends saying, fly, fly, fly. He'd hit that board and go. In fact, he became so good in college, he later tried out for the Paralympic team and made the Paralympic team and became one of the greatest long jumpers ever in the world by hearing that voice. Now, you need to know this, though. In the, in the championship match, event, there were two tries. On the first one, Lex's friend came over, squared his shoulders, he took off running as hard as he possibly could, but he is blind, and he got a little excited, and he got a little off path, and he thought he was about to hit the board, but he wasn't even close, and he jumped far to the right of the sandpit, instead hit the concrete. There was a loud, oh, from the crowd as he rolled along the concrete and tore open his shorts and tore open his, his skin on his elbows and his head. And it was, just, it was just awful to see. His friend ran over and helped him off the track and took him into the trainer's room. A few minutes later, he came back out with a, a fresh uniform, a, clean, a fixed uniform, and, and, and fresh wounds bandaged, and the crowd went nuts when they saw him. It was his time for his last run, his last chance to run, to run, the, to run the long jump. And again, his friend came over and squared his shoulders. He took off running. Fly, fly, fly. He hit that board perfectly, and he jumped well over 20 feet, setting a Paralympic record. I love that story for, for a couple of reasons. Not only is he listening to that voice and trusting in that voice, he also got up after he failed. I, I imagine every single one of us have had a moment when we got just a little off path, just a little out of sorts. We, we, we thought we knew where we were going, but the next thing you know, we failed. We faulted. We fell. And it was the one we trust who was there to pick us up. 
to dust us off, to send us on our way. By the transforming of our minds, by the renewing of our spirits, we can find the way and find the ability to let grace and trust divine our steps and not fear. If it had been me, if I'd been Lex, and I'd rolled in the concrete like that, oh, I'd have been afraid to try it again. But too often we let fear define our steps. Too often we let fear tell us where to go. Fear, fear is rarely a helpful tool. It almost always blocks us and gets in the way. Fear, fear denies the reality of grace. By the mercies of God, Paul wrote, Present your body as an offering. Mercy is, is another word for grace, as Paul says here. Uh, you know, you remember the old hymn, you know what, Amazing Grace? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Robert Capon, the old theologian, says it's always in that order. Grace comes and confronts us. Grace comes and says, there's failure here, there's fault here. Are you going to be able to face that? Do you have the, the vulnerable strength and courage to acknowledge where you've done something wrong, or especially when you've harmed another? Fear says, deny it. Fear says, don't do it. Fear says, don't admit your need for forgiveness. No, 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 push all that aside. Act like it doesn't apply to you. Grace says, of course it does. And then you can be renewed, transformed. Bob Goff, the author of that book, Everybody Else Always, points out something that happens on the first Easter. Mary's in the garden. She sees Jesus, but she mistakes him for the gardener. Does Jesus lecture her for her failure? Does Jesus confront her with her theologically weak understanding of the resurrection, not realizing that it's him? Lead, him? lead her in a Bible study? No, no, and no. Because his way is grace. He simply says, Mary. It's one of the finest sermons ever delivered. Mary. It's full of grace. You know, sometimes we need to realize that the best theology, the best theology we can ever present is simply loving and forgiving others like Jesus. We'll never have to say a word about our theology if we live that way. You see, too often we mainline Christians think, like us, think we, once we've explained everything theologically that we've intellectually finished the work and there's nothing else to, to be done. Now, I'm, I'm not opposed to theological education. I'm not opposed to any of that. I have three earned degrees. I worked hard for them. Made me a better thinker and a better pastor. But in the long run, as Goff says, keep this in mind. Loving people the way Jesus did is always the best theology. Which sounds like something Oliver Wiest one of our pastors, one of our earliest pastors, the second one, something Oliver Weiss said. You know, by the way, in that second room back there, that's the Weiss room over there, named after Pastor Weiss. He was being criticized by, the, by, by local preachers here in Columbus a hundred years ago or so for the weak theology of First Community Church. It wasn't a strong enough theology. They don't, they don't believe the right things. They don't think the right way. And they were constantly being criticized. And Pastor Weiss simply responded by saying, we in this church choose to follow Jesus. If that bar is not high enough for you, I don't know what else to say. Well, that's kind of a summary of what, I, what he said. He was a little more gracious than that. 
But that's essentially what he said. We in this church, we choose to follow Jesus. We're not going to be, our, the way we live our church life is not going to be determined by those on the outside, but by the one who's invited us, by the renewing of our minds to be transformed into the very gracious ones that God calls us to be. Amen.